Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. The Gist is sponsored by Stamps.com. Buy and print official U.S. postage using your own computer and printer and save up to 80% compared to a postage meter. Sign up for a no-risk trial and a $110 bonus offer when you visit stamps.com and use the promo code THEGIST. The following podcast contains explicit language. It's Wednesday, April 22nd, 2015. From Slate, it's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Let me update you on the fighting in Yemen and, more importantly, the names of the fighting in Yemen. So the Saudis teaming with Egypt, Morocco, Jordan, the Gulf states, some Yemen Sunnis. They fought, they bombed the hell out of the Houthi rebels. And this was called Operation Decisive Storm in the nomenclature selected by the Saudis. Hundreds were killed, thousands were displaced, some Houthis took it on the chin, and now it's over. And that was what Operation Decisive Storm was intended to do, make it decisive. Was it decisive? Not really. Let me quote Foreign Policy magazine. The ending of operations came amid signs that the weeks of strikes had done little to push the Houthis out of the area of Yemen they now control or slow their advance toward the key port city of Aden. By the way, port cities in these war zones, never tertiary port cities or eh, unimportant port cities. All the port cities are so key. Anyway, the Saudis declared victory. But they also said, yeah, we'll probably be dropping a light dusting of bombs again in the future. But even if we haven't won, we have done this. We've renamed the operation. It is now Operation Hope Restore. Not to be confused with Operation Hope Davis or Operation Stock Reshelve or Operation Dell Computer Reboot. It's Operation Hope Restore. This might mind you of a similarly named operation, Operation Restore Hope. Remember that? U.S. military took place in Somalia between 1992 and 1994. In 1993, you may remember the widely chronicled incident called Black Hawk Down. 75 Army Rangers wounded to U.S. soldiers' corpses dragged through the streets. The exact mission there was Operation Gothic Serpent. It was part of the broader Operation Restore Hope. And Gothic Serpent is a better name for a mission because afterward, no one could criticize it by noting hey, you know what? The serpent wasn't gothic. But I think with Somalia, we could say the hope was not restored. Will it be in Yemen? Let's hope. On the show today, I spiel about knickknacks and doodads. Before that, we talk to Maria Konnikova and play Is That Bullshit? Subject probiotics. But first, the FDA regulates food and drugs, except for when companies invoke their right, their right to simply claim, yeah, this doesn't need regulation. Mm-hmm. 
So what is in your food and who determines that? Well, joining me now are Chris Young and Erin Quinn. They're both reporters with the Center for Public Integrity. That means they are both centered and have integrity. Thank you guys for joining me. Thanks for, Thanks having, for having us. Having us. Okay, so I think we all think, well, it's not perfect, but there is an FDA, and as the letters suggest, they administer food and drugs. What's wrong with that assumption? Sure. So the FDA is in charge of about 80% of the nation's food supply, but what Chris and I found out in reporting out this story was that the FDA actually has no idea a lot of the times what companies are putting into our food as far as added ingredients go. They're allowed to do this because of a loophole in a 57-year-old law that really makes this all possible. And this is where we get to grass the stuff that's generally recognized as safe. Tell me about the grass loophole. This was created back in 1958. And back then, there was growing concern uh, amongst the public about what was being added to our food. Congress passed and President Eisenhower signed a bill, the first bill regulating food additives. And what that did was basically create two different paths uh, that food companies could get their new ingredients to market. And the main one was that food companies could submit their new ingredients to the FDA for a full-scale review. And the FDA would do a full safety review and make sure that they were safe, and then they would put a you know, solid stamp of approval saying this is safe and it can be added to the food. But the law also had an exemption. And what the exemption was for was for ingredients that companies could, if companies could establish that their ingredients were generally recognized as safe or grass, they were able to circumvent a full FDA review, which takes sometimes years to go through. And it's basically a quicker road to market. And the idea behind it was to avoid having the FDA approve, you know, vinegar and table salt and things that were so obviously safe. But over the years, companies have used this grass loophole as a way to get a lot of new novel ingredients to market and just avoid the regulatory oversight by the FDA. So can they use this with stuff that they actually invent in the lab, or can they use the grass loophole just with stuff that either exists in nature or has existed in products for a long time, and at least as far as that goes, has been proved to be non-harmful? They can use it for new lab-created chemicals, and that's where a lot of the concern comes in. It's hard to imagine what Congress actually intended back mm -hmm. in 1958, Critics of the system say that companies are increasingly using this as a way to get these new novel chemicals that were created in a lab into our food. And there, there's also even concern about some of what people would think would be, you know, not very harmful ingredients like botanical extracts, plant extracts. There's concern that it, when you kind of purify them and add them to food that there could be some harmful effects with those, too. So even things, and the FDA even uh, about a year ago uh, came out with some guidance to industry basically saying that we are concerned that some of these plant extracts that are being added to foods and supplements really might not be grass. Right. So the problem that I could foresee with generally recognized as safe has nothing to do with the word as, but has to do with all the three other words. Like, who's recognizing it? What's the definition of general? And what do you mean by safe? Now, you write a about this thing called lupin, which I'd never heard of. It's it's a plant. It exists in nature. It's natural. Only problem is it acts a lot like peanuts and can harm someone with a peanut allergy. 
That's exactly right. And the issue with Lupin is maybe not necessarily that it's unsafe, but rather if it's completely unfamiliar to people in this country, even though it's been used for years in Europe and the Mediterranean, it's pretty new to uh, people in the U.S. And so if you're peanut allergic, you might not have any idea that this type of lupin flower or fiber or whatever it is could trigger your allergy. That's true. But you start with an anecdote and this uh, woman uh, has some uh, food that has the lupin in it and she knows she's peanut allergic. But uh, in Berlin, where she eats this food, she has this reaction. It was notable to me that this wasn't an example of, you know, someone in Kansas City who did this is what's preventing the American companies from doing it. Is it like the old libertarian argument that the market will regulate itself and no company would be stupid enough to put an ingredient that will trigger a peanut allergy, thereby uh, killing or causing distress for a uh, customer and bringing bad PR to the company? That's a really good point, and that's that's a point that industry uh, consultants that we talked to brought up a, a number of times, like the idea, why would a company in, you know, we live in a very litigious society, why would a company put something into the food that's unsafe when they would open themselves up to lawsuits if something were to happen? But the counter argument to that is that because so many of these ingredients are going into our food without any FDA oversight and without anybody knowing, and also because, you know, when you look at your food label for, for what you buy at the at the supermarket, these labels, uh, ingredient labels also often have dozens of ingredients. So it's really hard for people to point out a specific ingredient that might have caused them harm and therefore they can sue over that ingredient. So what is the big takeaway that consumers, that readers of your column, maybe even that the industry or lawmakers themselves should have? The FDA says is that their hands are tied by an outdated law. These advocates who want to change this want the FDA to boost their oversight. But what the FDA says is there's nothing in the law from 1958 that lets us mandate that companies come to us and tell us what they're putting in the food. And until that's addressed, there's little we can do. But the FDA does realize that there's a problem here. They've said publicly that this needs to be fixed. And even the industry, uh, a powerful industry trade group, the Grocery Manufacturers Association, has said has started to come out and say that they're starting to, uh, they want to come up with an initiative to address this issue. So the FDA looking into this, I mean, the FDA has a lot on its plate, no pun intended. That's meaningful, right? The resources at the FDA are just so constrained that it's really hard for them to move at all. Between implementing the Food Safety Modernization Act, which targets foodborne illnesses, and dealing with pressing issues like a listeria outbreak, it's really difficult for the FDA to devote resources to a longer term problem when they're so focused in the short term. And the, and the industry is mm -hmm. convinced that that this process is, is working well, that it's served, you know, food safety well, and that there's really nothing that the concerns that people are bringing up about it are overblown. The facts say what to that? The, I mean, their argument is that adding more oversight to the system is going to stifle food innovation and that you're not going to have a lot of these new ingredients to our processed foods. Uh, and the counter argument to that from critics of the system are going to say, well, do we really need all of these ingredients in our food? Maybe, maybe they're not all that necessary. Yeah. 
<laughs> that just makes me laugh. Like uh, the claim that this will stifle food innovation. What a terrible thing if we had to exist only on the food that has been innovated up to, up to this point. Foods like, I don't know, potatoes and tomatoes and all the cows that are walking around. I'm okay with the amount of food we have now. The variety of food we have now. What are they going to stuff a crust with another crust? It's possible. <laughs> Chris Young, reporter with the Center for Public Integrity. Erin Quinn, reporter with the Center for Public Integrity, writing about things that are generally recognized as safe that are in your foods, but you might want to recognize them as other than safe, generally speaking. Thank you guys so much. Thank, Thank you. you. A lot of times businesses get stuck doing things the old way, you know, just out of habit for years. I was going to a painful dentist, right? He's like, my dad was painful. His granddad was painful. Haven't really thought of being a pain-free dentist. I say, get out of it. Stop doing things the old way, especially when it comes to mailing and shipping, which could become time-consuming. He said, I'm really all about bicuspids. I said, okay, not you, dude, but everyone else who needs Stamps.com. Stamps.com can help you with all your mailing and shipping right from your desk. You never have to go to the post office again. You can print postage for any letter, any package using your own computer. Then give it to your mail carrier. Drop it in a mailbox. It's convenient. It's easy to use. It'll save you money. You get special postage discounts you can't even get at the post office. Right now, use the promo code The Gist for a special offer, a no-risk trial, a $110 bonus offer. It includes digital scale. It includes up to $55 free postage. It includes that little tiny sink that never stops going. Swish, swish, swish. Don't wait. Go to Stamps.com. Before you do anything else, click on the microphone at the top of the homepage. Type in The Gist. That's Stamps.com. Enter The Gist. It really doesn't include a little tiny sink. You knew that, right? So let me lay out my positions just so you guys know. I am antihistamine. I'm anti-pasta. I'm pro-wrestling. But there's one I've been struggling with, grappling with, you might say, in the words of the pro-wrestler. So Maria Konnikova is here. She joins us as our expert on science to play Is That Bullshit? Hello, Maria. Hi, Mike. And I'm just going to throw it at you. You know where I stand on these key hot-button issues but I'm not sure if I'm anti or pro-biotics. Now, to, to figure this out, I think you have to tell me what the hell probiotics means. Well, that's a very good question. I had to try to figure that out myself. So probiotics are microorganisms, mm -hmm. live microorganisms. Okay, I like them. I like amoeba. I like uh, yep, anything that, with that cilia. That live inside your body. Sufficiently large quantities, they're supposed to be very good for you. They live in your intestinal tract, in your gut, and they do all sorts of cool things like help you digest food. And generally, they're supposed to make your gut a healthier, more wonderful place to be. Everyone's talking about gut bacteria. I, mm. I, I am getting the feeling that there's more research being done in gut bacteria in the last couple of years than was done in all the 16th century. Oh, absolutely. The microbiome is like the hottest topic it right now. so hot. Everyone is doing stuff on the <laughs> microbiome. I actually, before this segment, consulted with one of my science writer friends, Ed Young, who's writing a book about the microbiome, because I wanted him to give me all the latest papers to let me know if probiotics, if I okay. should be anti or pro probiotics. But even though the microbiome is getting really hot, even hotter than Polyshore's microbiodome, which would never released in the U.S., 
I think the idea of probiotics, to me, it conjures up, you know, health food stores and alfalfa in the 1970s. Which it should be conjuring up is Greek yogurts oh, yeah, and okay, kefir. Okay. Although kefir goes back centuries in the Caucasus and Turkey and Central Asia, people have been drinking it all the time. It's the, the fermented nature of it seems to, at least they say that it confers health and longevity benefits. And so this is something that's part of their culture. But we've recently, in the last 10 years or so, really gone on a huge kick. I mean, how many Greek yogurts are there now? And when you were growing up, how many Greek yogurts were there? Yeah. I mean, literally the New York state economy, I think, is pretty much based around Greek yogurt. I think you're right. We're doing whatever we can to shift our funds around to get more Greek yogurt made. Now, Kiefer, a listener of The Gist named Kathy Rubenstein, asked us to talk about kefir. So we decided to talk all about probiotics. And she says it might be bullshit. But her point is that the claims of kefir, things like intestinal health, overall health, and weight loss. Really? It's hard to believe because it's fairly tasty. And if it worked, I think more people would drink it. Does, does this stuff work? So that's a really interesting question. And it does not have a very easy answer. Mm-hmm. The shortest answer is the science behind it is sound. And we do know that probiotics as they exist in your body, in the microbiome, um, do all sorts of great things. What we don't know is how we can transfer the things that occur naturally in your gut into things that you can ingest and make sure that they actually stay there. Because you can be eating all sorts of bacteria and then it just comes right out and doesn't actually colonize your gut, which you need to happen in order to get the benefits. Um, That's one thing. The other thing is people say probiotics, but there are so many different strains. I mean, we have over 500 types of bacteria living in our stomachs, and that's the low end of the estimate. There are only really two strains of probiotics that have been developed commercially over a long period of time, and we don't know a lot of things about them. For instance, different diseases, you want different strains of probiotics to Mm -hmm. help. So basically, let's not let's take kefir off the table, as uh, you know most restaurateurs would recommend. Let's take kefir <laughs> off the table. Let's just look at yogurt. Yogurt is saying bacteria inside your body has been proven to be healthful. That's true. Yogurt is saying we've got bacteria in this product. That's true. You're saying what's not true is if the bacteria in the product really means that the bacteria in your body will grow sufficiently to make any difference. Exactly. And there have been some interesting studies that that show that there is promise for certain types of diseases. So it's not this blanket health claim that they make, that this is guaranteed to make you healthier, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. If you are suffering from certain conditions like irritable bowel syndrome, certain types of diarrhea, certain things you don't really want to think about. Yeah, that they have to invent euphemisms for as Jamie Lee Curtis does the commercial. (laughs) Exactly. For those things, actually, probiotics have been shown to help in clinical trials. For a healthy person, does it make you lose weight? Not as of now. Could it in the future? Um, Could there be designer probiotics that, you know, once we understand what's going on more? Absolutely. And more research is being done now. So maybe 20 years from now, probiotics will be a totally different thing. And then I could say this is totally not bullshit. Right now, we can't say that yet. We can say the promise is there, but we're just not quite we're just not quite getting there. Are there any products that are labeling themselves probiotics that there really is no sound science to back their efficacy up? Well, the things that you actually get, like the little supplements that say probiotics, those are probiotics. And there's science that will back up their efficacy 
with certain diseases, there's no science backing up the claims that they, the broader claims that they make. They're a food, they're a supplement, so they don't have to actually right. be subject to any FDA approval. So they can put all sorts of stuff on their labels, like this will make you into a beautiful human being with perfect skin. It's always perfect skin, right? Yeah. Um, when we all know that it's drinking 18,000 glasses of water a day. Exactly. See, is this We've already, segment we, number seven. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So those claims they can't make. What they can say is if you're suffering from certain things or if you're taking antibiotics, it might be a good idea to take them together. But when you stop taking them, there's a good chance that your gut microbiome will go back exactly to the way it was without any lasting changes. And so you only get any sort of benefit while you're taking it, not kind of this lasting recolonization. And you're not probably not going to be losing any weight. Yeah. Although I'd like to get uh, antibiotics and then just pour some kefir probiotics in a petri dish, just let them fight it out, the pro and the anti side. I think we can open up a betting pool. So just for the uh, official tallier, the guy likes to go right to the end of the franchise. You've intimated what the answer is, but I'll ask it again. Probiotics, are they bullshit? No, they are not bullshit. Some of their claims in their current form are absolutely bullshit, but the science behind probiotics is pretty sound. And I, for the record, am pro Maria Konnikova, who joins us to play Is That Bullshit? Thank you, Maria. Thank you, Mike. And now the spiel, Oswards and Upwards. Dr. Oz, Dr. Mehmet Oz, fighting back against charges that most of the things he recommends have no scientific basis. It's all detailed here in this report that aired on the Today Show. The response to air in full Thursday is aimed at a group of 10 doctors who sent a letter last week to Columbia University, where Dr. Oz is the vice chairman of the surgery department. Those physicians claim Dr. Oz has exhibited an egregious lack of integrity by promoting quack treatments and cures in the interest of personal financial gain. The thing that struck me that jumped out and I knew Dr. Oz was a quack was that the word quack. Why do we call bad doctors, guys without credentials or who give questionable cures, why do we call them quack? I looked it up. Quack, in the sense of medical imposter, is a shortening of the old Dutch Quacksalver, which is spelled not with a Q, but with a K-W in modern Dutch. It originally meant a person who cures with home remedies and then came to mean one using false cures or knowledge. Quacksalver. Huh. Never knew that about quacks. Well, what about hacks? We use hacks in a couple ways. We talk about taxis in New York, your hack license, but also my profession, journalism. If you're not very good at it, you're called a hack. Why are taxis and journalists both called hacks? Guess what? Comes from the same root, a shortening of hackney, an ordinary horse, which was used around 1300, probably from the place name Hackney in Middlesex in England. Apparently, nags were raised on the pasture land there in early medieval times. So it was a horse for hire and a broken down nag. The broken down nag part is where hack riders come from, very routine form of riding. But the sense of carriage for hire is where the taxi part comes from. Okay, quack hack. How about sack? Why, when you're fired, are you said to be sacked? Probably what you thought of. This is true. A dismissal from work comes from about 1825. Perhaps the notion of some worker going off with his tools in a bag. The original formula was to give someone the sack, which is also where the verb sack to plunder comes from, because 
In the Middle Ages, they would go and they would put the stuff that they sacked in a bag. This parallels the Italian sacco with the same range of meaning. The vulgar Latin saccare, to plunder, originally meant to put plundered things in a sack. Now, though, I think when you're fired, it shouldn't be called to be sacked. It should be called to be boxed because you put your things in a cardboard box. What about Mac, like the Mac Daddy, a big pimp? I couldn't believe it, but I was reminded of this as I was reading about the trial of DSK, Dominique Strauss-Kahn, and the main guy, he even opened up a club named after DSK. He was a friend, but someone who took advantage of the accused rapist. He was a pimp-esque figure whose nickname was the mackerel because in French, in still to this day in French, a pimp is known as a mackerel, which comes from the Anglo-French mackerel to procure, ultimately from the Middle Dutch mackerel, a broker. All right, quack, hack, sack, sack, and mac. How about a knick-knack? Well, this doesn't have a, have a great etymology, but it does remind me of a good joke. And you can tell this to your kids. They'll like it. All right. So it's a bank loan officer's first day at the job. Her name is Patty. Her last name is Wax. Patty Wax. And right there on the job, the first person who comes into the bank asking for a loan is a frog. And so Patty, nonplussed, and I use the word advisedly, but properly. She was a little bewildered. Nonplussed, asks the frog, all right, what do you want? And he says, I want a loan. And she says, well, we need collateral. So he says, well, I have this. And he shows this this thing, this this orb, this wooden weird orb. And Patty doesn't know what it is and says to the frog, well, what is that? And the frog says, you know, it's a trinket, a novelty, a gigaw, a biblo, an ornament, a trifle, a bauble, a gimcrack, a curio, a tchotchke. And Patty doesn't know what to do. So she says, my first day on the job, I'm going to have to go talk to my manager, talks to the manager, explains what's going on. The manager says, well, what is that weird wooden orb thing? And the frog says, you know, it's a trinket, a novelty, a gigaw, a biblo, an ornament, a trifle, a bauble, a gimcrack, a curio, a tchotchke. And the manager, middle manager, says, this is going all the way up to the president. So they go to the president, and the president goes through the whole thing. And Patty explains, look, we got this frog. He's got this thing. It's made of wood. We don't know what it is. And before the manager could even ask a question, before the president could ask a question, the frog jumps in. That's what frogs do. And says, sir, I just want you to know it's a trinket, a novelty, a gigaw, a biblo, an ornament, a trifle, a bauble, a gimcrack, a curio, a tchotchke. Bank manager says, I didn't know what it was. I mean, a trinket, a novelty, a gigaw, a biblo, an ornament, a trifle, a bauble, a gimcrack, a curio, a tchotchke. What do we do with that? Bank president says, I've been in this job many years and I've learned to make quick decisions and I've decided that it's approved. And Patty says, why is it approved? And the owner of the bank turns to her and says, look, it's a knickknack, Patty Wax. Give the frog a loan. That's it for today's show. Our producer is Andrea Salenzi. Salenzi, Italian for silence. That's an irony. Managing producer Joel Meyer's name literally means God, Joel, Yoel, of a swampy bog. That's what a Meyer is. Okay. It means God, Mayor, but if you just spelled Meyer a little differently, you could be the swamp God, Joel. You have that in your power. Andy Bowers. Andrew means manly. Bowers connotes subservience, so I guess he contains multitudes. Check out the GIST Facebook page. It's facebook.com slash slate GIST. The GIST from the old French meaning to lie. Am I serious about that? Well, I am when I say, thanks for listening. I'm Baratunde Thurston. I'm Raquel Cepeda. I'm Janet Colbert. On our next episode of our national conversation about conversations about race, we talk about the brutal police killing of Walter Scott in South Carolina and ask, will something really change? Do black lives actually matter? We address Kendrick Lamar's announcement about his wife-to-be 
and the dark-skinned activist who went in on him because she's not dark at all, colorism still alive. And finally, we deal with Mindy Kaling's brother, Vijay Chokalingam, who pretended to be black in order to get into middle school 17 years ago to prove that affirmative action doesn't work and is wrong. Is he right? We'll talk about that as well. Check out our national conversation about conversations about race on Panoply. Panoply.